It's Monday, April 1st, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 201 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician today. That musician is clarinetist and guitarist from the UK, Alex Ward. Let's have a listen. Alex was in town this past week here in New York, and I was lucky enough to catch up with him. Today on the show, Alex Ward. Before we get into it, let me say thanks to everyone who enjoyed, who listened, enjoyed, and, um, and got in touch about the 200th episode. That was fun, and it was fun to go back and read those letters, and uh, I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. Also, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the second mixtape I threw up last week. Like I said um, several episodes ago, I take every eight weeks off. So rather than just letting uh, a blank Monday go by, I think it's cool to put up those mixtapes. And uh, I hope you guys maybe, if you checked it out, you heard something you hadn't heard before. If you are enjoying this podcast, we are now 200 episodes deep. And if you're enjoying it, please show your appreciation by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Sign up, become a monthly donor. You could do it at, at any level, and that's how we keep the show going. As a thank you, all of the past archive episodes are available to those who pledge to the Patreon. In iTunes and on the 5049 website, the 100 most recent episodes are will always be available and free. But if you want to access everything that came before that, you have to become a Patreon donor. So go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash 5049podcast. If you're enjoying the show and you uh, want to show your appreciation some other way, go to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. It helps, and I appreciate it. All right. Today on the show, Alex Ward. You guys know Alex? He, uh, I met him for the first time a week ago. I saw, I just noticed almost like an hour before it happened that he was playing at Downtown Music Gallery uh, with good friend of the show, Josh Sinton and vocalist Ami Yamasaki. I, uh, I dragged my ass down there. We said hi. We, uh, we, got, we got on real well. You know, I've known his playing. I've known about Alex for forever um and we got to make this happen and i was super super excited that we were able to we talk about it a bit on the show today but i first i don't remember where some early on when i first got interested in improvised music and experimental music somewhere i read about this guy in england this kid who started playing with Derek bailey as a little kid it was alex and I, I've always, you know, over the years I've checked out his playing and I've enjoyed it very much. He's a tremendous um, clarinetist and guitarist. But the myth of Alex Ward preceded him uh, in my mind. And Alex, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's one of a kind. I strongly recommend that you check out his music. He was over stateside touring with the, um, I think they're calling it, This Is Not This Heat. It's a, it's a reboot of, of This Heat, 
with the surviving two members of the original band um, with four four new younger musicians. They've been touring the last couple of years. It brought them back over to New York to play the big ear, well, to play Big Ears in Knoxville, as well as uh, some shows in L.A. And it it got Alex a chance to be here and play some shows and, and check out some people. And he's just a great dude. Today's talk is is really enjoyable one. He's a dyed in the wool improviser. He's you know, I've, I've I've referenced and mentioned Derek Bailey a lot on here. I never met Derek, but to me, Derek Bailey is like the Yoda of improvisation. You know, I think I'm not alone in feeling that way. He's like the 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 main Jedi. You know, he actually the night that Derek Bailey died, it was Christmas night, two thousand five, December twenty fifth, two thousand five. I was working the door at the Stone for Otomo Yoshihide playing solo. That was pretty deep. But Alex is a great dude. Plays the shit out of the clarinet. Plays the shit out of the guitar. And you should check him out. You want to check him out? Go to alexward.org.uk. alexward.org.uk. He's based in London and does lots of playing all over. A lot in the UK, all over Europe. And if you are over there, Check them out. One thing I should say about today's show is uh, I mentioned to Alex early on in, in the episode that I think he's the first British musician I've ever had on the show. And I thought back on it, and that's not true. Fred Frith was on um, episode, I think, 85, 84, something like that. Um, and if you want to check it out, become a Patreon donor. Uh, but check Alex out. AlexWard.org.uk that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Alex Ward. Like every, like all the time. But what, what was that? That was nice the, the tune, but I don't, not the version. Um, it was a live record. Yeah, it, it sounds just, like that's something sweet, something tender off out yeah. for lunch, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I know this tune, but what's the piano doing in there? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. There was this guy I work with who, uh, I never would have like. Mm-hmm. It was it was a strange thing, you know. We 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 established that I play the clarinet, and he he goes, "Oh, are you an Eric Dolphy fan?" Right. And I just thought that was such a weird question. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm also a fan of water, <laughs> um, and breathing, <laughs> and friendship. Indeed. <laughs> like that's just, like, am I an Eric Dolphy yeah. fan? And I mean, it could have just been. You're a musician. Are you an Eric Dolphy? Okay. I mean, it's not, it's not really limited to clarinet players to no, appreciate exactly. Eric Dolphy. Exactly. But I would I would put him in the category that you know. I reserve for super special people, which is mm-hmm. if you're interested in history and in, in, in culture, mm-hmm. period. Yeah, you, sh- you have, kind of have to know who that is. Definitely, right? Yeah, I would say he's up there. Mm-hmm. Certainly, like Bach. Yeah, Coltrane. Mm-hmm. Like the Cats. Yeah, yeah. And did this guy seem to be? He laughed at, with that. He, yeah, yeah. He like yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he he when I laughed, he I think he realized the absurdity of the question. Oh, okay, right. But it's an absurd question. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty strange, but um, you know, I guess he was he was just reaching out in whatever way he could. But yeah, it's weird. I guess I don't even really think about Dolphy necessarily. Like, um, I don't like the clarinet isn't the like that isn't my main association with him. No, I mean the music. I, yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, particularly 
the kind of the longer it went on. Have you heard that uh, new? big box set that's come out because I haven't heard any of it yet. I have not heard it. I've right. heard that it's spectacular. Yeah, I've got to got to got to get it. Yeah. Um, cuz yeah, as you say it's great to have more anyway, but the fact that that's more where it seems like it's more stuff of his whole conception, not just kind of a live recording right. with a pickup band and I love some of the live recordings with pickup bands, but sounding like that will give you sort of more more of his composed work or stuff. I'm kind of yeah, very right. excited to Cheers. hear some of that. Cheers. I do wonder, it seems like all the time like just this past summer between um, the Coltrane thing that was found mm-hmm. and released the uh, both directions at once, right? Yeah. But then also that Miles thing that came out, which was the final tour with Coltrane. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is mind blowing. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, is there ever going to be like an end to these tapes? Prop. I mean, I guess the question is how concerned they're going to be with fidelity. I mean, there must. I don't know. Do you collect a lot of live bootlegs of this no. kind of stuff? No. Because I've kind of got quite heavily into that and got quite used to used to listening to some stuff where you're basically trying to, you know, discern it through layers of hiss or whatever. And if they're prepared right. to release stuff like that, then there will certainly never be an end to but it. That, but I mean, but you're you, you're getting these things like through trading and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean. Related slash. I mean, there's stuff from that uh, Davis Coltrane tour, which isn't on the box set. Right. There's, there's but I mean, that stuff. box set yeah. is pristine. Like, yeah, it, I mean, indeed. Obviously, you know, music aside, if you heard it, you and I said this is recorded last year, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be suspicious of it. No. It's crystal clear. Yeah. Which is great. Which, did you see this documentary that um, Peter Jackson made? Uh, they, sh- they Will Not Grow Old? No. What was that? It's fucking spectacular. Uh-huh. The British government contacted Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. Said we're coming up on 100 years um, marking the end of World War One. Mm-hmm. Got hundreds of hours of archival footage. Do something cool with it. Oh, right. Yes, someone else told me about this. And so he yeah. used all his digital mm-hmm. magic tricks and they made footage of the British Army in World War One appear like it was shot yesterday. Right. Okay. And it's an hour and a half of that. Mm-hmm. And it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right. Okay. Uh, but it seems like also the ability to clean audio, to clean up video, mm-hmm. is in a place. Yeah, it's rare now that you hear something like that. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, like, you can hear all the resonance sort of dying where they've tried to right. kind of take the hiss away and everything sort of kind of goes right, into, right. into a digital but do, silence. Do, is, there, is there a charm in any of that lo-fi stuff for you? There certainly can be. I mean... Certainly, sometimes it kind of can make you feel like you're there in a way that the uh-huh. pristine things count. Or it can make you feel like you think what being there would have been like, which isn't necessarily the same thing. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, certainly with some of the, I mean, the person that I've been really collecting um, bootlegs of is Cecil Taylor and sort of just trying to get as much of the Jimmy Lyons era as possible. And there's some things where. I kind of feel like the way they're playing, sort of particularly with the quartet with um, William Parker and um, I'm never sure how to pronounce... Richie Picard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like that music, you can hear sort of the direct lineage going back to the sort of... It it sounds to me like his most sort of bebop-related band. Yeah. 
But then I wonder, is that actually because of the music or is it because of the particular lo-fi of the recordings that I have? Of I it? think it's probably sounds both. like it's sounds like it. a Charlie Parker record. Right. <laughs> so um, it kind of it it definitely you hear those bootlegs and you kind of imagine a club of the kind that you it sounds like your traditional idea of a New York jazz club or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like live at the five spot yeah, or something. Yeah. Right. Which wait, did he do weeks at the five spot? Um early, I early. think. I think yeah. there's the thing where yeah, like everyone's walking out. <laughs> well, no, I think what happened is if I'm remembering I think it's the five spot. I'm remembering things from that four lives in the Bebop business. Apparently a residency that Cecil did really kinda of helped to establish that place. Right. But then the guy wouldn't kind of re book him and there was a lot of bitterness there because people were turning up to see Cecil and he kind of really put the club on the map but at the same time the guy didn't want to keep booking him once the place was established because no one was buying drinks during his sets sure he was they were turning up right. but they weren't a tale as old as when it comes to creative music it, sure. it was actually not I didn't think about this it'll be a year in like a week or so since he died that's right. It's like April 4th yeah. or 5th. Mm-hmm. I think 4th. Because I was at a, a show in mm-hmm. on Bleecker Street in the West Village oh, okay. that Evan Parker was doing with Ned. Right. And just prior to the performance, someone came up and said, Evan, I got to tell you something. Cecil Taylor just passed away. Wow. And they dedicated the set to Cecil. Mm-hmm. And Evan told the story that as a teenager, because his father was a, a commercial pilot, mm-hmm. he was able to hop on planes and that he had come to New York as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, something like that. Mm-hmm. And along, he, he went to go see Cecil on Bleecker Street. Right. Amazing. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Jesus. You never know who's in the audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you are, you're not from London, are you? I'm not. I kind of grew up in a town called... I mean, I was born in Great Yarmouth, which is in East Anglia, uh, but... I grew up in a town called Grantham, which is sort of in the Midlands, sort of a small town with not really anything to recommend it, to be honest. And then I um, uh, moved to Oxford and I was there for kind of eight years. And then I moved to university. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And then I moved to London in 2000 and I've been there ever since. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I think I think I think could be I think you might be the first British person that's ever been on this podcast is that right because you said that you tried to do Evan and it didn't work out yeah we had the time book Mm -hmm. he was in New York and he got delayed with something and we had a gig that night right so we did the gig but we didn't we weren't able to do this um but yeah for some reason I'm thinking that there may have been one but I can't remember yeah who it is it's it's just occurring to me as we sit here right I remember and I this is going to be like a very distorted um probably grossly inaccurate, you know, telephone version mm-hmm. of, of the actual events. But I remember hearing, you might be sick of talking about this, that when Derek Bailey was doing company mm-hmm. and doing his stuff around, you know, uh, uh, England in the, in the 80s, that some mm-hmm. little kid came along mm-hmm. playing the clarinet right. and that he brought in, like, a person much younger. And that was you. That's kind of right. I mean, the, the I mean, I met him on this, there was this organization called Community Music at the time, which ran, I, I think it ran all kinds of things, but it, one year it ran a summer course in improvised music. And um, because I was already kind of 
listening to that kind of stuff, my parents... At, at what age we're talking? We're talking sort of uh, 11 or 12. So I kind of Quite got young. into... Yeah, I got into this stuff sort of um, stupidly early. But but you'd been like a, a clarinet playing child? Um, yeah, I mean, piano to start with. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I was sort of... I was taking classical lessons and also listening to jazz and the jazz listening sort of broadened out and kind of crept into the sort of freer areas yeah. to the point where I eventually discovered the kind of European non-idiomatic, if we can use that phrase, stuff. And so by that time, I knew who Derek was. And so when uh, my parents saw that name on this particular workshop, that, that kind of made them think I might want to go to it. I mean, Derek's presence at the the course was pretty minimal and i've sort of since discovered that turning up and teaching improvisation was very far from his idea of a good time um yeah. but he sort of, he sort of turned up on the last day and played kind of in a small group with everyone there for like sort of five or ten minutes and then sort of got out of Free there improvisation as, yeah got out of there as quickly as he could but he remembered me and sort of thought it would be good to start including me in things and so yeah that's that's how it started. So at age 11, 10, 11, you're already responding to free improvisation. Mm -hmm. And you, would you say that you were initially responding to what you were experiencing as a listener or was it the process of participating in it? Uh, as a listener. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Until, until I got on that course and then having the opportunities after that, I mean, I had no one to do it with. I mean, I was... I was trying to play like that, but as you know, it's uh, the real response is going to come from when you start having other people sure. to do it with, and so that was at that point that was something which only happened in kind of imagination. But it was it was it was listening and reading about it that was. Kind and of, what were you reading? Um, I was very lucky. There was a great library not too far from where I grew up in Nottingham, and there were kind of all kinds of books. One that was particularly um, useful for me was that one, The Freedom, Pin the Freedom, Freedom Principle. Principle by John Litweiler. Yes, because that's, that's great, because that kind of... It covers a large range of stuff and draws the connections with them, but there's also sort of enough detail that it's not really cursory. And I'd say that's probably the book that filled in uh, most of... The one that gave me the most things that I was then going to go and try and search the records out from. Yeah, that's one. But there were others. I think, um, I think, as serious as your life was actually in the library in Grantham of all places. Uh, yeah, that, I think that came out like eighty five or something. Right. Like that. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Whether you'd go into one of these libraries now and be able to find these kind of books, I have no idea. But then it was, it was great. I, I, I just, I wonder, like, if it was. It's probably a combination of things, but the the period of time that we're talking about, the year, mm -hmm. early to mid eighties, but also being in Great Britain, I can say with uh, objectivity, I'm. How old am I? I'm 30, 38. Mm -hmm. um, that when I began to, to become interested in all different types of 20th century music, you know, mm -hmm. composition, improvisation, um, electroacoustic music, it was ghettoized. Right. Going okay. to the record store, it was like tucked away, okay. out of sight, and they maybe had a guy working that could kind of help guide you through things. And it, you know. So do you mean that all the stuff was kind of 
ghettoized together, or that yeah. all the different genres were, were also in their own own individual ghettos. Or I mean, uh, it, I mean, anything that was on a small print label, right? Anything that you know, like I'm thinking, I'm looking in my mind, and I'm specifically seeing like Peter Brutzman sleeves, okay, which would be sitting right beside you know uh, anything from like Fred Frith. To you know, to mm. to Zorn, to you know, like the the big guy, to William Parker, mm-hmm. and you know, we know that between the, all the people I just named, there's a million different worlds and and you know Venn diagrams. Mm. But in these record stores, it was just like, yeah, put all that shit over there. Right. I was kind of really lucky with one particular record store in the um, in this town Sheffield in the north uh-huh. of England, which is where my um, my father grew up. And so we would go there every so often to visit his parents. There was this one incredible shop called Rare and Racy. And that was basically a secondhand bookshop and record shop. And the books were kind of basically, when we had time, we'd go there for sort of two or three hours. My dad would sort of be kind of pouring through their collection of secondhand philosophy and literary criticism books, and I'd be pouring through the secondhand records, which were kind of like all free jazz and kind of um, yeah. both American and European. It was that was sort of an amazing shop, and yeah, I mean to this day, I think I could probably say look at my record, my vinyl collection, and say that fifty percent of it came from that shop. Really? Yeah. That and another place called Select Disc in Nottingham, although that was more kind of on the rock. What were some of, of the the first important records that you obtained? Um, for you, the ones that you yeah from from there. Um, that one, the version I got of it was called Vibrations. I think it's been a, under a few different names. That Albert Tyler, Tyler one yeah. with with Don Cherry and uh, that's, that's such a great album. It's like live. It's like recorded in Copenhagen. I think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there are a few recordings by that band, and they're all great. But that one in particular, it's as well as the music. It's really distinctively recorded. It's got this strange, sort of very evocative reverb on it. Which, yeah. Um, every time either does one of those kind of wails, it kind of really sets off this distinctive mm-hmm. sort of sound in the room. So that one, that that was a key early one. I think I got the. Um, one of the Cecil Taylor Montmartre things I can't remember. It, it wasn't the whole double set. It was just one one part of the with the kind of Nefertiti, the beautiful ones yeah. come that stuff, and and then later when I started kind of getting into to to more kind of rock orientated stuff, it was good for that as well. Like I bought my first Contortions record there mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, but so the early stuff, I mean. Like Cecil, mm-hmm. Eiler, like African Americans. Yeah, basically. I mean, that was my way in. That was what attracted me first. My way into the European stuff was by getting into the AACM people, mm-hmm. um, and particularly, I uh, I was kind of a big Braxton fan at that time. I was lucky enough to see the the classic quartet on that '85 right. tour. Hemingway, that, that, Dresser, yeah, Chris Bell. Yeah, the tour that Forces in Motion is about. Right. So I caught the Leicester gig of that. And it was through reading about those kind of people um, that the names of people like Derek and Evan started to come up because of the collaborations they'd done. Yeah. And so, yeah, I discovered... I discovered the English guys entirely through their connection with the African African American guys. Did that feel? Was there like a revelatory like uh, aspect of that for you to say like, oh, we have our thing over here too? Or did it feel like one think, step closer to America? 
Maybe. I mean, I it's kind of hard for me to remember. I think maybe I was slightly young to think in exactly those terms. Sure, sure. Although certainly the idea that it might be easier to get to see these people once I realized that, you know, they may be coming to towns not that far from me several times a year rather than a couple of times a decade, if you're lucky. Um, right. That, that made a difference. Um, and I mean, the thing, but it was... I'll admit some of it was a slow process. The very first time I heard Derek's music, I didn't understand it at all. It kind of... Uh, exact same yeah, experience. Prob- yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, that's not not a rare sentence for people to utter. Um, it was not until... I'm wondering, I'm seeing your Derek CDs. Yeah, there's not many there. of them there. I'm um, shuffling stuff around. Yeah, do you know that one dropped me off at 96? Yeah. There's... That was... Um, the first half of that was a radio session that was broadcast, and that was the thing that got me into him. Because prior to that, I'd heard sort of like the 70s electric stuff, and I think I couldn't follow it because the use of... The use of the volume pedal, pedal and the sound, yeah. I, it's sort of so extreme that I just couldn't, I couldn't hear what he was doing. Well, but hearing the acoustic to, playing yeah. on that, I kind of thought, ah, now I hear it. Well, going back to that fidelity thing, you know, when I, when I first heard Derek Bailey's music, mm-hmm. and I, I remember my response, like, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't even, like, yeah. what, you know, because I'm going from Eiler and mm-hmm. Coltrane to some fucking British guy, mm-hmm. like, plicking, plocking on, you know. And the fidelity was certainly part of it because mm-hmm. it sounded, in addition to being totally alien, it sounded like it was coming through like a CB radio. Yeah, indeed. But yeah, um, so the acoustic stuff is what clicked? Yeah, I heard it and I could hear what he was sort of doing with with pitch and stuff. Because, I mean, the other thing that I was listening to at that time was kind of, um, when I say contemporary, not contemporary at all, but, the, you know, sort of 20th century classical music and there was sort of, you know, getting into the, you know, second Viennese school mm-hmm. and kind of, and then moving from there to, you know, Ferrez, Boulez, that kind of thing. And I was kind of, that way of dealing with pitch kind of appealed to me and I could instantly hear the connection to that in Derek's acoustic playing in a way that was obscured on the yeah uh, electric playing. And um, right. And then yeah. when you got to know him, I'm guessing you learned that he was very much in touch with all that? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. So um, so you met him at age 11? 12. 12. I, yeah, I heard him at age 11 and, yeah, had met him at 12. And thinking back on that time, he, did he know how to engage with you as a 12-year-old? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I never felt any more uncomfortable comfortable about the situation than than I feel about most situations, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he was... I think, I mean... I imagine I was probably reasonably easy for him to engage with because I wanted to play yeah. for a start. And, I mean, the, the two things I wanted to do was play music and talk about music. And he was very good at both of those. Right. So, right. you know, I mean, I, he didn't... There, there was nothing... I mean, I'm sure I must have come out with, you know, all kinds of naive bullshit. But, well, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think I... 
I don't think he would have to have feigned an interest in anything that he wasn't right. interested in. And yeah, I mean, he just gave me a chance to play, and that was just, that was I was as happy with that as yeah. could be. And within those those musical social structures, did you find like a syllabus being presented uh, for you? Of here's the stuff you need to check out. Here's from Derek, from or any or, of the older people that you were around? N- no, I mean I would kind of sometimes when I would bump into people and I would um, that kind of thing would come up in conversation, and I was always glad for it because I always wanted more information, um, but n- not generally in quite such a sort of concerted form, and certainly not from. Derek, that was very antithetical to his kind of thing. Yeah. The only kind of thing I ever got from him was, as you would expect, uh, a vague discouragement to get too involved with jazz. I, he was, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Yeah. You know Derek. Derek can do jazz. I, I never met Derek. Um, but you must have read about his attitude to jazz. It's actually pretty vague to me because so I've read his book twice. Mm-hmm. The first time I read it as like a 19-year-old, I was yeah. sort of disappointed by how direct and right, like yeah. kind of academic it <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah, indeed. Reading it later, I'm mm-hmm. super appreciative of the mm-hmm. approach that he took and presenting, you know, improvisation as this, you know, global thing that's existed in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I I didn't know he had an actively dismissive attitude. Derek's attitude to jazz was that it died in 1956 um, yeah i mean and he kind of felt like sort of the early free jazz stuff was interesting kind of more because it was the sound of a language in disintegration than anything else and that after that kind of after you know after that interesting initial chaotic period of free jazz sort of um there's, there's kind of no point really and i mean he was sort of and he was also kind of you know anti-saxophones as well i mean he he, he um i mean he was nice about it but it was it, his his lack of enthusiasm when i started playing alto as well was fairly was palpable fairly you, you do what you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean you know like i said i, I never met Derek, but he is one of these like nagging voices in mm-hmm. my head of where improvisation as something you can listen to mm-hmm. as something that you participate in musically it's all very much uh, a philosophy and a way of life mm-hmm. and a way of sort of keeping things honest in the musical practice yeah. and it's sort of like the like you know like i get i, I imagine what like what for some people is like a catholic guilt like Derek right. Bailey sort of like exists in my consciousness mm-hmm. for that, you know, that musical purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. And as such, as you say, it's useful, but it should also be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about Derek. I mean, you know, he was incredibly important in my life and I have you know nothing but fond feelings about him and similarly to what you've just said I kind of his ideas are also very important to me but I also kind of recognize that there's kind of something slightly 
maybe ridiculous isn't the right word, but dogmatic. Yeah, I mean the thing. The thing is, this is. I was talking about this with someone earlier today. People seem to get kind of bent out of shape about when great artists make proclamations which seem unreasonable. But that's kind of what do you expect? Someone like I mean, it's it's the same thing that the way that people react to someone like Boulez. It's someone like Derek was a genius. Yeah, and so obviously his. My outlook on music is going to be completely weird and, and skewed and make yeah, no yeah, sense yeah. to anyone else because right. you know that's that's what genius is. I mean, right. it's sort of so you use those kind of ideas and outlooks for what you can, but you don't feel that. No, I don't think anyone else can really take on board what Derek was about wholeheartedly because they'd have to be him for that. Yeah, that's a good way to put mm. it. So as you were developing as a musician as an improviser you know as a, as a young teenager how, how quickly did you start creating your own musical situations uh socially personally putting forth your own ideas into something new um in terms of being able to kind of do it with other people that was that that took a while there was there wasn't really anyone I could do much stuff with where I was growing up. I mean, there was some friends who I had kind of some musical taste in common with and we would try and do things, but it kind of, it never really amounted to anything. Sure. I was sort of doing stuff by myself, you know, the the typical working through um, the, you know, overdubbing, you know. Oh, you did that? Yeah, moving from the, you know, start off with the two tape recorders. And then you get your first four track. And so, oh, you, yeah. I, I didn't realize that was. Oh, yeah, that was very much a, a thing. I mean, for, yeah, up until. Up until about kind of mm, in various ways, up until about my sort of early 30s that was kind of quite important to me i've sort of stopped world. that's the thing I, I kind of feel like i want to get back to it i mean i'm sort of uh one of the things that i'm happy about in the last sort of 10 15 years of my life is that i've found a pool of players i want to work with and i've managed to form groups that i'm happy with and found ways of working with people and so i've got very orientated into that way of working and it's sort of taken over from that and i'm happy that that's happening but there is a part of me that is always sort of thinking ah i hope some time i find myself in a position where i have you know nothing booked in and somehow just about finan enough financial stability that i can just sort of Get back Be to alone them. in the lab. Yeah, I'd, it feels like too do, long. Do you have I've the workspace that. for that at home? Yeah, I could do it. I mean, I do. I do some of that kind of stuff. I mean, kind of the closest um, I've done to that kind of thing is I, there's this sort of two piece kind of mathy rock band I have called Dead Days Beyond Help, uh -huh. which is me and the drummer Jem Dalton. And our last album, pre all our pri previous albums had been kind of more or less the way we do it live guitar and drums and occasional overdubs like some strings or something to kind of bring out aspects of the composition but the last album we thought we were going to divide it in two we'd write one long piece 
that we could play live and record that fairly naturalistically for the first album, the first half of the album, and then for the second half of the album, just do a complete sort of studio construction using a lot of the same material and melodic yeah. ideas, but having nothing to do the way we play that, just starting sitting, at, as you say, at the work desk, putting things down, putting sounds down. If the sounds were good, we'd keep them. If they weren't good, then we'd think what other instruments we'd get to replace them down the line. And that was the closest, and I enjoyed it. I'm very happy with it. Uh, the only way in which it wasn't quite that close as it was with another person, and that was great. But yeah. as you say, there's still that, that special thing when it's just you, just you. It takes studio. a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I mean, for me, those are the, like like psychotic manifesto right. you know it mm -hmm. took me you know a year to create this like 30 yeah. minutes of music sure. and i don't even know what it is anymore mm -hmm. it's the sound of like i don't know if this is music or an audio documentation of me working through something indeed like you know have what you, i'm saying have you got something in the pipeline like that or yeah. i mean right yeah. i've always got that stuff going. Oh, okay yeah, yeah. hours and hours of shit right and is it going to be another sort of based around the 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 solo clarinet in the way that the last one was? Or uh, probably kind of... not. No, okay. no. It's like it's a lot of weird like percussion and okay. wow, great. synthesizers and stuff. <laughs> Excellent. But, yeah. So, so you by the time you finished high school, you had mm. been become pretty involved in free improvisation. With I mean, who else was around? As, as so, you know, Derek was this figure. But who were some of the other? Okay, so I mean, who I was meeting? I mean, I was meeting them all at like kind of Derek's. Um, you know, things that he would get me involved in. Actually, that's not true. There was also, the one thing I was able to kind of near me, there was this guy called Brian Parsons who ran a kind of improvising collective in a town not far from where I lived. And that was that was great, actually. That was a chance to sort of play with, with people a little bit more regularly. And, um, yeah, Brian was sort of very special and very encouraging. I shouldn't forget that. Yeah. But um, at the... Uh, the things with Derek, I guess, who I was meeting through him were... He would tend to put me together with people who were sort of younger than him but older than me. So, sure. So it was him that introduced me to Steve Noble, to Pat Thomas. Um, yeah, I mean, the first record I had out was on Derek's label, and that was a duo of me and Steve. Um, Steve Noble? Yeah. Um, oh, he, man. That, I mean, that actually came came about because Derek took us into the studio and we did some trio recording and then all the possible duos. And Derek decided that what he wanted to put out was the duo with Steve. And at the time, I kind of sort of felt, oh, I thought I was going to be on a record with Derek and now I'm not going to be on... But he recognized that there was some sort of special right. connection between me and Steve and, you know, we still play, you know, all Steve's the time. Steve's really heavy. He really is, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a deep dude. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's probably the single most continuous musical presence in my. I mean, yeah. I think we met in 1987, and you know, I still I went round to his house just to do some duo playing last week. I mean, with it's a very yeah. Yeah. I've probably learned more about playing from Steve than from anyone. I'd say. Yeah, he's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, have you, have you ever had a chance to play with him? Or no, we've never met. I mean, I, I've I don't. 
know that I've even seen him live. I've just heard him on records. Right. Okay. He he certainly. I think he's made it over here once, and I don't even think that was to New York. I think he came over and played in Chicago with Brotsman, and I think that's probably the only time he's come to. I've America. got a record that he made with Steve O'Malley that I okay. think was recorded in concert in Philly. Ah, that would be right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And yeah, it's fantastic. That, it's... that is that's a good duo. They work well yeah. together. Yeah. So Steve Noble. Yeah. Pat, Pat Thomas, Pat who, Thomas. I, who I met, and that was kind of fortunate because uh, that meant that when I moved to Oxford, I already knew someone in the town uh, yeah. because I'd met Pat at Derek's company things, but Oxford was his his base. And as soon as I got there, I started doing stuff with him. And that was... And he introduced me to the other players there. And that kind of saved me from my... Uh, it well i i didn't get on with my course all that well i got on with it i just didn't really see the point of it so i so you went to go study clarinet performance no quite the opposite i mean it's it was it was a very academic course which is kind of what i wanted i kind of felt like because the sort of practical and performance side was you know i i was i was getting to do that and i'd found was getting into this area and having the chance to play with people. I was happy for that to kind of take its own course. I didn't want to pursue the classical performance thing. I felt what I wanted to do was learn more about music. Yeah. I wanted to do a course where I would get to do some analysis, kind of really learn about how things were put together. And so that's what I was hoping for. But I kind of feel that what I got was a history of music course in the most literal sense of the word possible. A kind of a course where you got to learn about a lot of music in a sort of semi-superficial way and got to, you know... You like got memorization to learn, yeah, learn, practice, learn a lot of yeah. facts and dates and get yeah. to sort of... And never get into anything in any real depth. That, sound, um, which, that sounds like university. Yeah. <laughs> now, in retrospect, I <laughs> yeah. realize that. But it was fine. I mean, the thing is, I was lucky because this was... Uh, in England... This was like, there's still at that point, I may even been the last year of this, there was still the thing that you could get, if you got accepted to university, you could get a grant to study there. They would like kind of pay for you to go and your living expenses. I think that got wiped out like two years later or whatever. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's incredible. So that was it. I was basically able to, whatever my reservations about the course were, I was able to treat it as a sort of, you know, you know, a day job and a day job which is better than most yeah, and in yeah, the meantime yeah. pursue the improv stuff in the town and so, so actually, all, all through university you pursued it just as doggedly as before yeah or more so oh yeah i would say so i mean what improvisation so. yeah yeah i mean the only sort of maybe the slight change was kind of that at that point i started to become more serious about getting some kind of rock stuff happening as well because that was uh, part of your world as a listener yeah definitely and you were already playing the guitar i was and i mean i'd kind of the guitar had always been something i was very much self-taught on and it kind of made a sort of nice contrast to the the clarinet where i was taking the classical lessons the guitar i could kind of you know treat it much more intuitively um but as I sort of started developing the kind of ideas for what I wanted to do in a rock context, I started taking the guitar more seriously just to try and 
be able to write and play the kind of stuff I wanted to to write and play. And so that was kind of where my guitar vocabulary started to develop. And that developed over the period of time, mainly through this band I was in, Camp Blackfoot. And by the time that band ended, um, I think, again, against Steve Noble encouraged me to try using the guitar in an improvised music context mm-hmm. as well. And so that's how that um, transition happened. Mm-hmm. When you, going back just a little bit before mm-hmm. that transition, you had interest in rock music. It was mm-hmm. part of your life. You wanted to participate with it. Was there? It, it sounds like you never had this thing that a lot of us, myself included, go through of like, yeah, this is the music that I love, but I play the fucking clarinet. Like, how do I bridge mm. these worlds? Yeah, I think mm, that's an interesting one. I mean, I guess for one thing, well, I guess partly that is maybe why I started, <laughs> you know, paying more attention to the guitar. Um, in the kind of, the sort of improvised context, I think my clarinet playing was very influenced by saxophone players. Sure. And so that was always kind of the model that the the sort of aggressiveness that you can get with um with a saxophone i was always sort of trying to achieve that on the clarinet it's and not an easy thing it isn't and i mean the clarinet you know you can only push that thing until it sounds yeah. like someone complaining well yeah stating something that's the thing i kind of um this was sort of really uh brought home to me Last night when I was playing with Patrick, Patrick Holmes. Oh, you, that's right. Yeah. With him and Corsano. Yeah. How we, was that? That was really fun. Really Patrick's nice. the best. He really is. He's and so good. Standing next to him, I mean, apart from just sort of any musical things, it kind of made me aware. I'm, I think of myself as a fairly loud clarinet player. I've yeah. Got, and, but there's a sort of a sharpness, I think, to my tone, which probably comes from trying to replicate that sort of saxophone aggressiveness. But standing next to him, his tone just seemed like so much wider than my... It's just, the, just like this breadth of the sound as yeah. well as the sheer volume. It was kind of like sort of terrifying, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I've, I've done gigs with Patrick before mm-hmm. where we're playing with a drummer, you mm-hmm. know, and something like Corsano, you know, he, yeah, yeah. he can play pretty loud. Yeah. Um, and I've had that same experience where I'm mm. like, how is he controlling this thing? Yeah. <laughs> like, with as much clarity, I'm over here, it sounds mm. like a dog whistle. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's difficult. I mean, the other thing... I've sort of been doing, and I was sort of kind of I I did a lot of this around the time we're talking about. That's around the time I was at university and working in the the improv scene in Oxford, and it's something I've just sort of started doing again over the last kind of six or seven years. Is working with amplification on the clarinet and very crude kind of amplification. I mean, basically, what I do now is I just take a mic and plug it into the exact same setup I used for guitar and back then it was even cruder and so all I'm using are like kind of distortion reverb and volume pedal there's kind of no sort of delays there's no effects there's mm-hmm. just just things that and are you're using the mic. like a microphone like that or like a, kind of, a pickup it's, it's um, it's a microphone. Like it's a it's an AKG C one thousand. I use a pickup as well, but I just use that for a sort of a clean sound. A, you know, a, a, a naturalistic sound when I need a yeah m- uh, more volume than like a condenser can give me. But so yeah, I mean, it's basically 
making the clarinet sound as kind of lo-fi and you, and inducing feedback and distortion with it. So I guess that's um, yeah. Um, I guess that's trying to square that particular circle that you're talking about of how do I make uh-huh. this instrument work in you know yeah in, in an aggressive context. So w- when I saw you play guitar the other night, mm-hmm. that's like a short scale guitar, right? Is it? Uh, I don't think no? so. Did it just look small against you because you're tall? Maybe. I mean, it's got. I mean, it's certainly. This is the, this is what's going to become apparent. I'm very <laughs> ignorant about gear and instruments, <laughs> and I'm like that with the guitar and with the clarinet. I'm kind of. I really yeah. so. The fact that you can ask me that question and I have to say I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know if there's any other guitarist who wouldn't know if their instrument was short scale or not, but that's me, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's funny. I One thing I always notice, and sorry for anyone listening who doesn't give a shit yeah. about the clarinet, mm-hmm. but I, I noticed the other night, you were, the ligature you're using, it was just like one of the old classic metal yeah. two-ring things that... Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, I listen to kind of uh, people talking, and you know, in the podcast you've done with other clarinetists and talking about mouthpieces, it's, it's like... When I started playing, I just used the mouthpiece that came with the clarinet. Yeah. It was my clarinet teacher who told me to to go and sort of look for another mouthpiece. And I got uh, a 5RV because it seemed right to me at the time. This is when I was like kind of, I guess, the, I'm trying to think if I'd already got that by the time I was playing. I'd met probably when I was maybe 11 or 12 or something. And I used that for about 15 years, and then I broke it. Mm-hmm. And then when I broke it for about another five years, I just used the mouthpiece that came with the clarinet again. Uh, it was a different clarinet, but it was still just the, the one which came. And then I'd kind of managed to save up enough money to buy a mouthpiece and I went to a shop and I tried various ones out and to see if I liked any and I just the one I liked most was the 5RV again and so I just got it and yeah. that's what I've used ever since yeah so I don't <laughs> I, I don't spend that much time with that shit mm-hmm. the, the the mouthpiece I played the mouthpiece I've been playing for the last five years or so Patrick told me oh that's a good right. this this mouthpiece gets I just ordered it on Amazon mm-hmm. and tried it okay <laughs> Great. It works, you know. I still cool. sound like me. I still hate the way I sound. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's the, I, I don't that's think that's the nature of playing the clarinet. That's it. Yeah. 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 And w- um, again, sorry for anyone that doesn't give a fuck about the clarinet. But what? What are you? Are you playing a buffet? What are you playing? Yeah, it's a yeah. buffet R thirteen. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. It works. Get, it get an R thirteen and then call it a day. Yeah. That's the way it's going to go. I think so. Yeah. Is that what you play? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Play R thirteen. Yeah. But. Patrick plays like the plays Selmer a thing. Yeah. And, ben uh, Goldberg plays a Selmer. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, so that's, an, mm. that's enough of, like, yeah, of yeah, that we've, clarinet we've done talk. The clarinet yeah. um, so, performance, were you able to start doing shows right away around England? Were you able to get outside of Oxford? Um, I was getting sort of chances to do that um, mainly. Th- still mainly through Derek and then and occasionally other people I'd work with would would get something in London um then I wasn't really searching that out because again I think my my um 
my focus was more on the rock band in terms of trying to book stuff for myself and that kind of felt like a way off like we needed to to develop that a bit before we could consider trying to tour with it but then I started getting asked to do other things the first kind of I think probably the first year I did a serious amount of touring was probably 1997 so I'd have been what 23 and I had kind of two things there which were uh, one of the company weeks I'd done with Derek Chadbourne was on it oh. and he remembered me and asked me to uh, play in this band of his that was kind of loosely themed around the music of Duke Ellington huh. and so he booked uh, a tour of kind of Amsterdam uh, sorry Holland and Switzerland we were where we did that um, yeah it was an interesting six piece band who was in the group so it was Chadbourne me Pat Thomas uh, Paul Lovens, which meeting oh. Paul at that time was that was yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, playing with him was fantastic. And then uh, two double reeds players, oboe and bassoon, Carrie Shaw on oboe and Leslie Ross on bassoon. So it's that's, very that's a weird group. But it it was a weird group. I mean, yeah. it was fun. So yeah, it was this kind of woodwind, this insane clattery drumming, and then Pat with. A piano if it was there if not his kind of you know fucked up electronic set set yeah. up and chadbourne being chadbourne um playing these pieces that i think he'd sort of applied some kind of cut up collage technique to ellington scores and made these new heads out of them and mixing that with his country songs and stuff and so yeah that's a wild ride really was but it's a fun one really and you yeah. got a taste of touring definitely so that was my first taste of touring europe and then Another kind of wild ride of a different sort was I was on the, you've probably heard about it, the and I think that was the same year, 97, the Butch Morris London Skyscraper tour. You did that tour? I did that tour. Yeah. Who was on that tour? Lots of people. Pat again, Phil Durant... Um, someone reminded me that Keith Rowe was on it, and I'd really? completely forgotten that. Keith was a very shadowy presence. I'd, I'd completely forgotten he was there. Keith Evan was, was on it. Butch was conducting. Yeah. Keith was playing under Butch's baton. I believe so. As I say, I, I, oh, I don't remember I would love to have seen that. Yeah. I mean, th this tour was kind of famously fractious. The Butch and the, yeah. the, the English improvisation approach did not gel well who whose idea was it to put that together i think it was the kind of the lmc people the london musicians collective um uh probably i don't know i'm trying to remember who was in charge of that at that time whether it was ed baxter or whoever but i think but i think at that time butch was doing a lot of that just booking doing his concepts around in various countries and saying sure. to to people this is what I want, this is what I need, Get find some, me the players. Yeah. And I don't know if anywhere else it was as uncomfortable as it was there. It, but it was... I'm sure it was everywhere. Butch brought to improvisation mm -hmm. like the most old school mm -hmm. like band leader berating right. the the cats on the bandstand shit. Right, yeah. And I watched him break plenty of people. You know, I mm. did maybe 20 gigs with Butch 
and there wasn't a single one of those gigs that was completely a joyous mm-hmm. experience. They all had an element of, like, and I know he was in Vietnam, so I, I used to wonder, yeah. like, is he just bringing like his PTSD right. to the bandstand? That's that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, the the difference though, maybe with this is that um, he kind of got stuff coming back from Good. The, the, the and that's the thing i mean i can kind of see both sides on on the one hand there was a number of things that i thought was kind of unreasonable about his approach both in general and secondly i kind of felt like maybe he should have researched the nature of the players he was dealing with a little bit more before just treating them as kind of material that he could put through sure. the meat grinder on the other hand i kind of felt that some of the the players who took exception to it most and my apologies to any of them who are my friends who are listening yeah it's a kind of a one in a lifetime experience sure view it as a le- i mean you don't have again it's similar to what we we're saying about people like Derek. this sort of you know dogmaticness Treat it as a way to get just insight into, you know, an amazing musician's yep. ideas. You may not agree with those ideas. You may find those ideas compromising to what you want to do. But basically, you're getting paid to have a week learning about someone else's musical world. Yeah. Is that the worst thing that can happen exactly. to you? Well, you know, it's funny. You know, I, I've... You know, yeah, like I, I've, I've talked some shit about experiences playing with Butch. Mm-hmm. I will say, without question, it was gen, a genuinely inspiring and, and generally really positive experience for mm-hmm. me. The, the stuff that was hard to deal with was really hard to deal with and right. kind of left a mark. But mm-hmm. I remember specifically watching him get bent out of shape um, with the musician who just couldn't loop this. Like he was trying to All get right. him to loop this phrase. Mm-hmm. And they, this guy was just incapable of. I mean, probably most things in his life, this guy was incapable. Right. <laughs> I think he was a very dysfunctional person. But what I, I was watching, and I, and I said, oh, you know, Butch is hearing something mm-hmm. that this guy is not hearing. Right. And if you have like the smart thing to do, would be to, okay, I, I'm I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Guide me. Let me bring me into mm-hmm. what you're what you're doing, which is what the whole construct of yeah. that music is, and. Once I got that insight, it made the music a lot more enjoyable, mm-hmm. but it was also a tremendous life lesson, which is like, you there's you don't know far more shit than you do know. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And if you meet these people, you have these interactions, it's an opportunity to learn something you didn't know. Yeah. To hear something the way you didn't hear it before. And Butch was great about that. Mm-hmm. You know, he, was, he had a very unusual way of hearing things. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. How many times did you work with him? 20. Right, okay. You know? Uh, in a group that was very problematic. Okay. You know, 13, 15 musicians, four or five of whom were like, for real. Right. You know? And who'd put that group together? This guy in New York who um, named Ty Cumbie. Okay. Right. He was booking gigs at mm-hmm. the time. He'd put together like a consortium of improvisers, you know, for a specific series of concerts. And, you know, like I said, you know, Nate Woolley was there. Yeah, you know, There okay. was like, you know, some real people that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Grasp improvisation, right? And so, why in New York did Butch not handpick all the people himself? It was <clears throat> it was two different concert series. One was a, t- a thing that Ty had put together uh, for the series that he was doing. But then, in 
this was 2005, Butch did a month of concerts in New York. Mm-hmm. Every single day right. um, at different venues. Some days he was doing multiple concerts each day. He went to Ty and said, hey, that thing you put together was cool. Uh, there's one slot here. It's every Saturday at you know 4 p.m. at this okay. place. And, and that was like the continuation of that group. And then there were gigs around that leading up to it and afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's how that worked out. Okay. He, but right. he definitely, I don't know if I should keep this in, but like he, <laughs> like he had, the gigs were prioritized. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a coincidence that this group was playing at four in the afternoon at a place in Times Square. Okay. While other groups were playing. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. 10 o'clock Saturday at Tonic. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, so you did that tour with Butch. Mm. So yeah, I think that and the thing with Chadbourne were the same year, and those were. Hey. Sorry, here comes uh, a Chihuahua. <laughs> so this one's Pearl, right? That's Pearl, yeah. And the other one is Javier. Hey. Yeah, but yeah, I mean Chadbourne and Butch, those are two legends. Yeah, so I mean, I think that was that was definitely the year where I kind of felt like, um, firstly, I felt like I was getting to know what it was like to be an actual sort of working musician, and secondly, getting exposure to. Uh, how different people, different band leaders put their stuff together, worked with a band on the road, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and what was it like working with Chad? Oh, great. I think the it took me aback at first because the first gig that we did, I felt was... To me, it seemed under-rehearsed, and I didn't know why we hadn't rehearsed more, because there would have been time to rehearse mm-hmm. more. And I think at that time, because I'd never done it before, I didn't realize that there are certain things you can't get to in rehearsal, and there's no point trying. They're only going to happen through building the band up through gigs, and obviously Chadbourne knows that. Now... I still struggle with this. I still struggle with the idea that if you put a new band together, that the people who see your very first gig probably <laughs> aren't going to get, get the best thing and that you've got to kind of inflict a few kind of less than... Well, but that's why you do low-key gigs at well, home. Well, yeah, precisely. In your hometown. Indeed. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one wasn't a low-key gig. This was like at a, quite a big festival um but i mean it wasn't the thing is again it probably was a, probably no one in the audience minded what i minded because for a start they didn't know the material and secondly probably once we got to the end of the tour and i thought it was great it still externally sounded as chaotic Pretty and all the over the place yeah. <laughs> so um so yeah i think that was that was a learning thing that was a kind of um because i think i would have thought well why aren't we just like playing these heads again and again and again but in rehearsal so that when it, we can yeah. nail it in, and yeah learning that that's not always what it's about isn't that something like mm-hmm. you think about like mo- uh, the shit that you slave over mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Uh, we pull that pop oh, off. Oh, right. Uh, the, like you, you assume like like you you take on this the position of God, nail it, get it right, get it right. Mm-hmm. The reality is, no one's gonna hear it like you yeah. hear it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean like you should, <laughs> that it's not mm. important, but that that you know whatever you know you you spend however many hours nailing that turn of phrase or whatever yeah. it is, it still goes by and 
an eighth of a second. Yeah, and conversely, the the opposite can happen. There can be something where someone says, "Was that meant to happen? Did, did, <laughs> did, was there a fuck up there?" And it's like, "No, that's exactly what I meant to happen." You know, that sort of. Um, but yeah, especially like at go, a festival, yeah. where people are like looking, you know, thumbing through the mm-hmm. program. They're you know waiting in line to get a beer. They're trying to find their friends. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh Jesus. So, um, so yeah, that was that was a learning thing. But the beyond that no that tour was a joy certainly the because we did what we did was there was at that time the Taklos festival the way it worked is that there were kind of three towns that happened in and like kind of three different bills of bands and they would kind of rotate and so you'd play Burn, Basel, and Zurich on successive nights, and it would all alternate. And then we did kind of like three or four nights in Amsterdam, just as a sort of pure touring. After that, and the Amsterdam part of it, yeah, that was great. Slamming, yeah, 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 uh, definitely. Um, had you traveled through Europe much before? No, I think I'd had. I think I had a few kind of like one-off things with yeah. Derek. Like maybe I, maybe we'd done. Um, Den Haag and Rome, but that was kind of it. Sure. Not much. And, um, oh, God. <laughs> now there's, now there's, sorry, now there's sorry? two chihuahuas in okay. here. Um, did you, when did solo performance start becoming important to you? Um, much later. I kind of, and I sort of regret that now. Yeah. Um, because, if there's one th- mistake I kind of feel like I made early on, it's being just a little overguided by what I thought I wanted to listen to. Huh. And at that time, I didn't particularly like listening to solo wind performances. I kind of found it, it wasn't wasn't really my idea of i didn't find i just didn't enjoy just that sound. solo wind or solo period um solo wind i mean solo i think maybe that kind of thing of a solo voice i mean solo piano is obviously different sure someone you know solo guitar is different but yeah i think solo solo monophonic instrument it was kind of like this is i, I find this lacking and so I thought, well, I don't like to really listen to that kind of stuff, so why should I bother trying to do it? Hmm. And now I've realized that that's not... Firstly, my listening has broadened out, and now I kind of, you know... I think I've worked through that as a listener, but I've also realized that you have to work on putting together... You have to test your vocabulary and your concept to make sure it will work in all the concept all the contexts it might be called upon to do so and just like ignoring some contexts because you're not so enamored of them Mm -hmm. you're not going to develop some of the things you need to develop and so yeah that's that's kind of an aside i kind of now wish that i had sort of really thought more seriously about solo performance earlier than i did why is that i mean do you feel like you're you're behind the curve right now or uh i feel like i'm behind the curve in everything really. of course um <laughs> you play that's the the, i kind of that's the... <laughs> basically my feeling at the moment is that 
if I had done what I've done up to this point, and I was 35, I would feel very good about myself. You feel like you're behind on something. I feel like at 45, maybe it's a little Whoa. kind of... Ooh. You okay, Pearl? Sorry. She's fine. She's wagging her tail. Um, yeah, at, at 45, yeah, I just feel like I'm slightly playing catch-up a little bit. But, but what, does that mean like you, you feel like you're playing catch-up on creative development or on a specific or a certain amount of output? Um, both, maybe. I mean, yeah. they, kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. I mean, although... Mm, that's a difficult one. I mean, that's complicated by the fact that, yeah, we live in an era where prolificness is both kind of overvalued and of no benefit whatsoever. You gotta re- just, you gotta, um, yeah. I'm not saying you, mm-hmm. we've got to resist that mm-hmm. shit. You know, I, I, it seems like such basic common sense. I have to remind myself that if something doesn't make me feel good, to mm. not participate with it. And sure. there's a lot about the current world we live in that makes me feel really mm. bad. Yet I still hold myself accountable to it, to it until I can like find the wherewithal to remind myself, like, oh yeah, this shit that like is eating at me. I don't want to be relevant. To right? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be relevant mm. to a cycle of listenership that takes place in an hour. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, in a way, the fact that I feel like I'm playing catch-up is sort of... uh, It's unfortunate because I don't want to... In a way, it would be nice to feel happier with putting out less stuff, but I feel like I've just got to get it done. I know, I know. But reverting to the solo thing, I mean, for a long time, I would only play solo if someone would ask me to. And I would never seek out those opportunities myself. And that's how the first... I made my first solo clarinet album when I was 34, I think. I'd made one other solo album, but that was a big sort of overdubbed thing of songs. That's kind of different thing. And that was, again, something I did because I was asked. And um, basically it was sort of playing the way that I'd found myself playing during gigs when I'd been asked to do those and I think generally how it sort of tended to work and I was sort of happy with it is that there'd there would be a tendency to sort of start off with a kind of fairly discreet presentation of material I'd kind of like I would generally approach playing solo by okay I'm going to do something now I'm going to do something else now I'm going to try and work out what those two things might have in common or how they can be combined, and that would sort of set the process going. And so generally the performances, they would start off with this kind of isolated gestures with a lot of silence, but that wouldn't last very long, and it would build up to this uh-huh. point of hysteria, and they, they, would, they would kind of these sort of slightly kind of hysterical sort of psychodramas. And I think the album that came out captures that reasonably. Um <laughs> And then it was only much later that I started the second solo clarinet album that I made, which came out two years ago, is it now? That was much more a product of real thought. That was kind of really sort of thinking about what I wanted to do, 
how I could do it. And there was sort of a process of like kind of, yeah, I'd say there was a process of at least sort of three years of thinking and practicing that went into that. Then, I mean, it was recorded in like a, a, a couple of days or whatever, but yeah. Um, yeah. Live it, solo acoustic improvisation. Yeah. I mean, basically mm, two acoustic and one electric. I uh-huh. wanted to do that. And so, I recorded the acoustic ones. I think I set up the mics, recorded one day, and thought, "Yeah, probably that's it. I'm, this feels okay." But I'll leave them set up and just try it again tomorrow, just in case. And I did it the next day. And as soon as I did it, I was like, "No, that's that's, that's what it was meant to be." Great. It just felt much better. So that was that. And then there was sort of a gap of about nine months where I kind of because I knew at that point that I wanted to balance those with an electric piece and working, waiting till I felt ready to record that. And the recording of that kind of happened the opposite way. I set up and started recording something which was just, I was just going to play for a couple of minutes as a sound check. And I found myself enjoying it and I just kept going and after I'd done it, I thought, oh, maybe that's the take. And I tried a few more other ones, and I realized that I was never going to recapture the lack of self-consciousness that I'd got on that yeah. one. And so that was the one. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's a tremendous feeling. Yeah, that was really good. And subsequently, solo playing has a different... Uh, it, it means something different to you now. Well, it does, but now the, the thing is, since that, I've been kind of thinking... The next sort of stage has been kind of thinking about making a solo guitar album which i finally finished about a month ago Uh and that was also a long period of thinking and playing um doing some gigs and seeing how they would go and the turning point in that was when i realized that I wanted it to have some composed elements, which for a long time I wasn't thinking of and never considered with the clarinet. But sort of... Like you actively resisted the concept of composition with the clarinet? Like you felt like you had to stay true to a spirit of improvisation? I now wonder whether that was the case, but I don't think so. I think it's more that I didn't... I kind of... I think I just sort of assumed that that was the default assumption... And nothing came up in the playing to make me think that that default assumption might be wrong. Whereas with the guitar, I think what it was is that my solo playing, even when it was completely free, tended to be largely quite pitch-based, very kind of note-orientated and sort of working with melodic and harmonic material and at some point I thought to work with pitch quite that consistently and not allow yourself to use... I think I just started to realise that some pre... working with some pre-existing pitch material mm-hmm. in that kind of process could only help. It wouldn't yeah. hinder. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, with, with solo playing specifically, you pick the instrument... Mm-hmm. Each instrument, there's like the one or two people who have like put the gauntlet down. Right. You know, it's like the second you, I mean, maybe I'm just talking so specifically from my own experience, but like you pick up a a guitar to play solo 
There's already a couple of people yeah. that have and cast they, it so widely. Mm-hmm. The same with the, a sax or a sure. clarinet or a piano. It's like, the, you know, you sit down at the piano, make a, a solo improvised record. Mm-hmm. Try to keep Cecil Taylor out of your head. I yeah. dare you, you know? That's right. Or a solo woodwind record. Try mm-hmm. and keep, you know, uh, the Evan and Braxton out of your head. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I've sort of done with that is maybe try and specifically kind of draw some influence from people who aren't playing the same yeah. instrument. I mean, I will say that certain aspects of Evan and particularly earlier his stuff have become much more important to my playing and much more directly influential on me in the last sort of five years or so. And I kind of trust and hope that the mere fact of it being on a clarinet is going <laughs> to take it far enough away from uh, <laughs> from pure imitation. But it's sort of, yeah, I mean, I've definitely tried to... I mean, one of the things... One of the things I wanted to be quite different about the second solo clarinet record from the first one is far from that kind of, as I say, sort of presentation of isolated material and then sort of building up and subsiding. I wanted it to be much more, have a much more consistent momentum and also sort of deal with the different pitch registers much more integrated and mixed up. And if you're going to think about those two things, you can hardly avoid the way that Evan plays because those are exactly, exactly the problems that he's solved most um you know in the most extraordinary way yeah so yeah i kind of i didn't shy away from letting letting myself get involved with some things i might learn from him and as i say hoping hoping for the best that the instrument uh transforms it of necessity and then with the guitar stuff i think definitely the sort of studying I've been doing of uh, coming back to the, all these Cecil Taylor bootlegs I've been listening to, I've been sort of really studying them, trying to work out what's going on in terms of the integration of composed and improvised material and certain ways that he deals with pitch transformations and allowing myself to be influenced by that in a way which is hopefully less problematic if you're a guitar player than if you're a piano player. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> so, so the reason you're stateside right now is because you've been on tour with This Is Not This Heat. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so Charles Hayward is leading the group? Uh, well, it's the two the two surviving original members who are Charles Hayward and Charles Bullen. It's, yeah. They're, they're the leaders, and then there are... It's, the group's gone through various different um, slight permutations of lineup, but it's kind of settled on this six-piece lineup. So... Um, for younger musicians in place of the the one original musician who died in the kind of early 2000s, I think. Yeah. So those four musicians are you? There's me. Um, there's uh, James Sedwards, who I've known for eight... I mean, yeah, he's uh, been a close friend and we've done music together for like the last 25 years. He leads a great band called Nort, and he's currently the um, 
the the second guitarist in Thurston Moore's sort of main touring rock group. Right. Um, then there's uh, Daniel O'Sullivan, who has played in various groups, including Guapo, and he's doing his own sort of like kind of solo song material at the moment. Does this other band called Grumbling Fur. Um, Frank Bing, who's a drummer, uh, runs a record label called Slowfoot, plays yeah. in uh, various interesting bands, including one called Prescott. So, yeah, an interesting group yeah. of people. Yeah, good group of guys. And yeah, yeah. this has been exclusively um, a touring outfit, right? It is. I mean, I think that probably when it's all done and dusted, there will be some kind of... Uh, I imagine there will be some sort of release to market it, not market it, to... Mark the moment? Mark the moment. Make it, yeah. um, A sort of retrospective thing. Um, Probably, you know, whether it will be just audio or maybe video, I don't know. But I imagine something drawn from the best of the live performances we've done. But it's, I mean, we're exclusively playing the material from their original album. Right. So we're not going to go into the studio and record that stuff. Had you spent a lot of time with that music? Um, I had come to do so. It's, it's interesting. I found my route into sort of, I mean, I'd known Charles kind of um, through, I mean, Charles Hayward is kind of quite connected with the London improvised music yeah. circuit. And he was the so second I, drummer in Massacre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'd kind of known him in various contexts for quite a while. But um, this heat, I, when I was, it's sort of a similar thing with the, what I was saying about hearing Derek's music for the first time. When I was in my teens and was kind of buying a lot of, you know, just kind of exploring all the kind of, um, unusual rock bands I could. I bought a copy of the second album, Deceit, and I couldn't really get on with it. I, it was too strange for me. Yeah. It's sort of like the strange combination of the the experimental tape work with this sort of odd sort of pop sensibility, but not quite. I, I, I didn't dislike it, but I just couldn't. I, I, it was, it was too strange. I just sort of listened to it and thought, yeah, I respect that very much, but I don't know how to listen to it. And I kind of put it on the shelf and sort of forgot huh. about it. And then uh, a lot later, um, I was around at a friend's house and we were talking about this. And he said, "Well, mm, have you heard their first album?" And I said, "No." And he put it on, and kind of instantly, I kind of, ah, okay, I this. This that hit me. Um, you, you clicked know. with that, yeah. And clicking uh, with that, did that offer? Yeah. Then yeah. I went back to to deceit, and then you know that's the thing. Just as with Derek's electric and acoustic playing, once you once you have the thing which makes you understand where what the artist is sort of what's at the kernel of their approach, then you can apply that to all the different things they're doing and and mm-hmm. get it. And now, yeah, I, now I love those two albums equally. And it's so just it's, those two records, right? It's those two records, and then there's the 12-inch um, Health and Efficiency, which we always play the A-side of. And uh, I think there are, there are a few other releases, but I, our repertoire is basically just drawn from those. Yeah. And people are going wild for it. They really are, which is very gratifying. Partly because it's always nice when people enjoy performance, but also, as I've said to several people, yeah, I think all of us, you know, 
younger guys and older guys know we we know what that music means to people and so the last thing we want to do is get on stage and not have it be everything that yeah. people want it to be it would be the worst feeling in the world to go on that and people were kind of like mm, well it was nice to hear those songs but it wasn't really like it could have been and thankfully we don't seem to have ever had that response yeah it's funny i i i I feel like a lot of improvisers, mm-hmm. we we have, a, not all, mm-hmm. have a tendency to to look at pop musicians and mm-hmm. that that play the same songs night after night, and we're sort of condescending in a way, sort of like, man, how do you right. do that? How do you play mm-hmm. the same fucking thing over and over mm-hmm. again? If you're playing for people that nothing makes them happier to hear that music, like mm-hmm. that's how you do. It. Well, yeah, I mean that is part of it. I should say, though, it's, it is also the thing that, I mean, we did a week in the States just now, which was four gigs, New York, two nights in L.A. and Knoxville. And that's the longest run of gigs we've ever done. We yeah. kind of generally do sort of two or three gigs, and then there's, you know, a gap of a month before the next one. So we've never been in that position of just, like, really cranking out the same yeah. set night after night after night. And there's also... And I think everyone, well, specifically the the original members, they're quite sensitive to that, and that's why the band is coming to an end at the end of this summer. They're, you know, they they know that there's only a number of times yeah. that we can play this set and it feel the way that authentic, it's yeah, and, yeah, and like they're it. they're very keen not to not to overstay that. So yeah. yeah. Um, I agree with what you're saying, but there are also other yeah. other things. It's so funny. Like um, a couple of years ago, fuck, a couple of years ago, ten years ago, eleven years ago, I I, I saw Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys play mm-hmm. three shows in one week. Right, and they were all really different. What was he playing? I mean, material. One set was um, it was a benefit. The whole thing was a coincidence that I saw him three mm-hmm. times in one week, but. One was uh, he had a stripped down band doing a benefit concert for um, like some some lung cancer thing. Okay, uh, but he had a couple guests perform with him. Stripped down arrangements of mm-hmm. of Pet Sound stuff. Right, and most of the people in the audience were, uh, you know, like people who were there for the benefit, not necessarily mm-hmm. for the music. Right, it was fine. It was cool. Yeah. The next one was a free concert in Coney mm-hmm. Island for people that listen to oldies radio okay and that was a free show mm-hmm. and people were partying and the band was having a blast and they were playing beach boys hits okay across the spectrum all right and i mean people that was the most fun one mm-hmm. and then i saw like a gig that was like for the listeners you right, know okay. where they're doing smile shit and they were doing all this stuff wow. and that was cool but the one I was outdoors at Coney Island for free at mm-hmm. sunset with all the fucking drunks and losers. Right. That was the best one. Okay. <laughs> Great. I mean, that's... To, and these were all within, like, one week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, I always kind of... That's sort of my... In a way, my kind of ideal. I always think that would be great to be able to go and tour with a band and play sort of different sets each night. But... It's hard when you when you try and the kind of little bits I've sort of done that I I think I overestimate. It's easy to overestimate your own abilities. It's easy to think, yeah. oh, well, I can carry all this material, play it, and then the second night you're kind of like, oh, 
do I actually remember how this song goes? <laughs> it's kind of, it's there's nothing like playing one set of material to put the next set out of your mind more, yeah, more disturbingly than you thought it was. It's going so to. funny. One of my favorite living musicians, one of the musicians who's had more impact on me than others, is Bob mm. Dylan. <gasps> yeah, borderline obsessive right. since a very young age, mm-hmm. and you know, just like when people talk this shit, you know, Yoko Ono can't sing, Ringo mm-hmm. can't play the drums. You know, people talk about you know Bob Dylan playing his songs different all the mm-hmm. time. This guy's been doing two hundred and fifty shows a year mm-hmm. for at least twenty five years now. That is the context within which he's creating music. Yeah. And he's a real artist. And the fact that he is reinventing this shit constantly mm. like is is mind blowing. Yeah. The fact that people take exception with that is a testament to their own mediocrity. Oh, completely. Without question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I haven't again, I mean, I went through I mean, I was sort of through the bootlegs kind of really sort of um, immersed myself in the Dylan Live stuff up to a certain point and I've kind of lost track over the last sort of probably the last 10 years how are the shows from the last 10 years do you have you seen fantastic right great I've got to get back into but also it's Mm. like and I feel like as performers we understand this like yeah, if he's doing a brand new version of an old song mm-hmm. and his maybe his voice isn't like quite up to mm. the task or like his what he's doing with the piano or the guitar yeah. isn't quite as hip as like a you know died in the wool blues player or whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's like that's what's cool about yeah, it. Yeah, is that he's challenging himself mm. and maybe he's not succeeding by conventional standards a hundred percent. That's what's awesome. Yeah, yeah, is you're hearing the best dude ever push himself as hard as he can and sure. not quite make it. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what we want? Well, yeah, indeed. Indeed. I mean, yeah, I mean, Dylan to me, I mean, I I feel like my my ideal of what live performance should be was kind of very shaped by sort of being exposed to, to certain Dylan live recordings kind of early on, like kind of um, the... Before it got released officially, my parents had the bootleg of the 1966 album. The Royal, yeah. yeah. They had that, and there was this night that Ronaldo and Clara was broadcast on TV, and my dad painstakingly sat up and sort of just recorded the musical performances from it. And I kind of wish he'd recorded the whole film, because I would like to see uh-huh. it. But, but that's that, you know, 1975 Rolling Thunder stuff, and those... The Rolling Thunder stuff yeah, is my absolute favorite. I mean, it's so good. And just seeing the intensity in his performances of that, I mean, that that really... I think well, watching that stuff at a young age has completely sort of told me what live performance it's should funny. be. It's funny. Another thing, like, I, Dylan to me, you know, like we started the conversation mm-hmm. saying Dolphy's one of the guys. Yeah. Like, Dylan's without question one of the yeah, guys. Yeah, That Royal Albert Hall concert, mm-hmm. the way he deals with this overwhelmingly disapproving audience mm-hmm. is so funny yeah. and such a lesson in how seriously Indeed. you should take the audience yeah. when it comes to their criticism <laughs> of you because there's one point someone screams Judas mm. yeah. and his response is so classic he mm. just says I don't believe you <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> what do you want? so mm. you get back to England when are you going back tomorrow uh yeah I'm kind of uh what is it? I'm sort of 
getting confused on what I've done and what I haven't done. Yeah, tomorrow I'm I'm uh, at the moment I'm crashing with the uh, sax player Sam Weinberg. Yeah. So we're going to do some recording tomorrow during the day because we did we did a duo concert in London when he was over at oh wow and that was. That was fun, so we're going to try and record some of that stuff, and then I fly back to um, London in the evening. Yeah, and then I'm around in London for about a week, and then I go off on tour. What I was doing today, just before I came here, was rehearsing with the Flying Lutenbachers because I'm depping for Brandon Seabrook on their upcoming European <laughs> tour. So, oh um, really? That's that's my next thing. That's going to be fun. That, that is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, That's yeah. some crazy music. It really is. And um, and crazy people. Yeah. Yeah. Wait it's... a second. Let me think about this. Brandon might have been the most sane cat in that band. Right, and yeah. Brandon's completely out of his mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't so met... So now you have to be the most sane guy. I, I, I guess that's my task. Um, I haven't met Matt yet. I don't know Matt. He's but... out of his mind. Right, okay. Yeah. Good. But Weasel and Tim I know very well. Completely so, out of their minds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's going to be a fun two weeks. Oh, fuck. I didn't realize you were doing that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's going to be really fun. It really is. Have you heard the new record? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I've been... You well, know, yeah, of my, course you have. Well, that's learning thing. It, yeah. My perspective on it is kind of weird because I've been sort of listening to it to try and learn it. But yeah, it's really good. It's really good, I think. You got some big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, the, that was the thing. Just sort of, yeah, yeah, just replace Brandon Seabrook. That's <laughs> no, no, no pressure there. But um, yeah. Well, that'll um, be amazing. It will. So um, yeah, I'm getting ready for that. I'm going to try and get, you know... Try and get some sleep during the next week. Yeah. A little bit of catching up would be good. I, I can't tell you how happy I am, I am that we were able to make this happen. Likewise. I ran yeah. into you the other night, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, this has been absolutely enjoyable. Definitely for me, too. Sorry Thanks if my colleagues are annoying. No, they're good. They're good. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. See you soon. All right. That was Alex Ward. Hope that you guys enjoyed that. Listen to him. He can play, man. He's awesome. In the background, that's him, Simon H. Fell, and Joe Morris, the great. Man, that's good shit. Am I, am, I, am I lying? Listen. Excellent. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate you coming over and doing the talk. Uh, I'm glad we could, could make that happen. If you want to find out more about Alex, go to alexward.org.uk. Big, big discography, lots of great music. alexward.org.uk. Go to the 5049 website, check out some uh, some past episodes, buy a CD or a t-shirt, and, uh, and I'd appreciate it. All right, that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you next week. Bye.